How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora we all come from somewhere else. You can find us, and indeed subscribe to us, on www.plasticpodcasts.com. Journalist, novelist, and teacher, Bridget Whelan has engaged in the practice of writing for over 50 years. Writing for the Catholic newspaper The Universe in 1971, she moved on to the Daily Mirror, working with a legend that was Paul Foote. Her novel, A Good Confession, came out in 2008 and is set in 60s London and Kerry, while her e-book, Back to Creative Writing School, and her various lectures in both creative writing and non-fiction have inspired and supported numerous scribes from all walks of life. It's a fascinating story, one of constant change. But before we get to that, we talk about her early days in London. Uh, up until the age of 11, we lived very near um, Sadler's Wells Theatre in it was then the London Borough of Finsbury, now part of Islington, so a very central part of London. Um, and then we moved out to the suburbs, we moved out to Ilford in Essex, and that was at the start of my secondary school. And your parents are both Irish? Yes, my mother um, was from a small town called, a small village, um, very small village uh, called Currens, very near Farrenfour Airport in County Kerry, and my father was from the Midlands. He was from Tarlington in County Offaly. And when did they come over? My mother came over first. She came over um, in 1942 to train to be a nurse. But you think afterwards, you kind of accept what your parents did. But she came to, at wartime, the country at peace, to a wartime country. I mean, in the centre of London, and she, you know, she was bombed out of her hospitals and things, and, you know, and uh, why she did that was because she decided she, she was um, a farmer's daughter, and she was working away in the farm, and she wanted more, and she wanted more opportunity than that, and she had an uncle who was a doctor in London. She wrote to him for advice, and at that time in Ireland, you had to pay you for your training to be a nurse and he said he would be very happy to pay for her to be a nurse in Ireland but if she wanted to come to London then he would find a hospital and he'd um, help her in every way he could and see her as often as he could um, and she decided to come to London because she didn't want she was scared that she wouldn't succeed in the training and she didn't want to be beholden to him she didn't want him to pay out money that she actually might not um, um, graduated being a nurse. So that's her reason for coming to, to, to London. And um, she did write about it. She did, she was interviewed about it, her experiences as an immigrant. And so she got on the train at Farron Four and by Kalani, she was ready to come back home. But, um, uh, but she made it across and stayed for 40 years. She was, she was 20 years old when she left, 40 years in London and then she retired back for about 20 years. Coming eventually back to us, to my sister and I, so she could be near us, um, about um, six years before she died. So the last six years, she lived in a, in a sheltered accommodation very near us, and then in a nursing home. And what about your father? He came after the war, but it was still being in the 1940s. Um, and he came, like a lot of Irish men, to um, the building sites to rebuild Britain. And they met at um, a dance in Holloway Road. And 
then lost contact with each other because she was going home on holidays to Ireland. And um, what the nursing the hospitals used to do was for the Irish nurses is give them their holiday in one block. So she went home for six weeks, which is unheard of anyone to have that um, holiday. Um, but they would do that so that every day, they, so that they make most use of their holiday going home. And, um, and they lost contact. And she was always looking out for him at dances, but never saw him. But he, and she was, she moved, they moved hospitals quite a lot. They, without any choice, they just were transferred somewhere else. And he waited outside various hospitals. And as nurses came out, and he said, you know, uh, do you know Nancy O'Sullivan? And eventually he found her. So that's oh, rather nice. It's a very sweet story, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you say your, your mother wrote uh, about all this? But, um, no, she was interviewed for a lovely book called Across the Water, which was came out in the 1980s about Irish uh, uh, women's experience of immigration. Across the Water. Um, yeah, it really was quite groundbreaking. I got a lot of reviews at the time. Yeah. So, like you say, you were raised in Ilford, was it? Yes. Ilford, Essex, uh, Seven Kings, just a little place outside Ilford. Yeah. Right, and um, when you went to school, and I'm, I'm presuming this is what about the age of eleven or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're a kind of fish out of water, obviously, because you only just moved into the area. Um, and did your did, did your Irish background give you any like a greater distance, or so you know, just add to that sense of isolation, or was it not an issue? Yes, it very much felt like being an outsider. We couldn't. We moved just as I was uh, entered uh, secondary school. My sister was a year older, and there simply were no places in the Catholic school, secondary school, um, in the area. And my mother decided that we, my sister and I would stay together and go to the same school. Um, and so we went to an ordinary state at secondary modern, which was a big shock as well because um, in London, schools had gone comprehensive. They hadn't yet gone. So we didn't, so we didn't have any um, 11 plus results to give anyone. And um, so we only could go to the secondary modern. And it was very, yeah, it was a very different world. Um, I remember um, I did learn to stop blessing myself at mealtimes and things that school lunch wasn't, that was, um, that was odd. But you had things like, um, you know, observing the holy days, you know, the days of absence, you know, and things like that. Um, yes, it was a very different, it was a very different setup. It wasn't something we were familiar with. It was a different kind of community. Um, and I suppose, um, yeah, and we felt different there. Was that the Catholicism more than the Irishness or was that part and parcel of the same thing? It's always difficult to define that actually, isn't yeah. it? Especially as most people you know who are Catholic are also Irish and that would have been true <laughs> there. Um, I don't know. I think um, I think it, I think that those were too, so closely identified. I think in, in, my, in one's own mind as well as being part and parcel of who you were. What we did do was go to um, instruction at the local Catholic church um, one day a week, one evening after school. So we met up with other mm. children who were in the same position as ourselves, in, and. Um, and eventually, you know, went to youth clubs there and everything else. So there was a, a, a community that we could um, lock into, but it was the daytime. You know, school was it was a it was a very different proposition than the one we had experienced. 
Did your parents come from a period, and I'm, I'm, I'm referring back to, 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 to my own dad's um, experience of school, which was out on the West Coast in County Clare, and at that time in the in the late 40s and early 50s, it was um, it seemed like a fairly nondescript experience that, that really he came out of it without much in the way of a formal education. Yeah, I, my father certainly didn't come out with much. He went to the Christian Brothers, and he would tell us tales of how cruel they were of how he was a great um and he was known for it how great he was at truanting and how he would um how he could cook hedgehogs in a special farm you know he would eat on you know outside and everything else and he would camp and do anything to avoid school but eventually i mean he did get some schooling maybe but he i think he got very badly treated and the, the story which I treasure most, which says an awful lot about my dad, actually, is that uh, he left school at 14 and he walked out of the school on the Friday to the gate, turned around, went back in and punched his teacher in the face and knocked <laughs> him down and walked out. So I can't imagine my father ever fighting, but he would do that, yes, for all the blows he had suffered while he was a kid at the school. Yeah, so he um, so he, he wasn't that much interested in education. One could it, any interest he had was beaten out of him. Um, couple that with men dyslexia. Um, yes, and he he um, went on at that time to be an apprentice butcher, um, which I don't think he enjoyed much. I mean, he did his apprenticeship, but he never really worked in, in the trade. Um, and then worked on. Uh, as a turf cutter for Warner Mourner. Um, and then, as I say, came over to England and worked on the building sites until he, um, he was very good at his hands. I mean, if, you know, he, he would have been a great, he was a terribly good handyman. He could, he really, um, for someone who had all those things, he absolutely understood lots of things. He could fix a television. He could, he, he, he probably could rewire, he would be able to rewire a house, although he wouldn't do it because he'd, you know, I mean, he has too much respect for the electricity to do without being checked. But um, um, he understood all that. But he would have been—he should have been an electrician or something like that. But um, he became a a wood machinist, a sort of maintenance person um, on railway from 1960 onwards. Mm. So that was his job, which was um, which had a great one wonderful benefit of allowing us cheap fares to Ireland, which meant we. We went home to Ireland every year. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Bridget Whelan's career took her from Catholic Weekly to Fleet Street and beyond. And it all started with her mother finding an advert in the universe. Our best school and I'd gone on to a sixth form college and was having a great time there. And, but I was still 16 and she decided that this is enough. That's, that was enough education for anyone to have and I should really be working. Um, so that's what I did. I, I went for the interview. I wasn't, wasn't best pleased. I didn't want to go, I didn't want the job. <laughs> I was, oh, I'd go to the interview and, um, and they gave me the job because it was, you know, this is um, early 70s. You got a job so easily. It can't, you know, if you lost one, you get another one. My husband um, 
worked, um, he worked in the newspapers and print all his life. And he said, he remembers seeing a job on a Friday night and not feeling at all worried because he knew he'd just be able to walk in somewhere Monday morning and get another one. <laughs> um, and it's, it sounds, it sounds made up. It sounds a fairy tale, but it was, uh, I think an extraordinary period of full employment so that if you wanted to work or were able to, you could. It was, yes, it was a time of um, full employment with um, with possibilities and prospects, I think. And did it help that you were, you, you, you were Catholic to work for the universe? I mean, was, did, did that... Oh, I think that was essential. Did that reignite your involvement with, with, with the church or, or did that create more... Oh, oh God, no, no, well, not really. Uh, uh, I think you probably had to just because it would just... There would be so much to learn, you know, if you didn't have all that background. Um, but uh, no, I wasn't. Um, I think I stayed there four or five years, and uh, but no, it, it was it was it was quite good fun, and it was um, a very interesting bunch of people to work with. Um, the news editor was absolutely brilliant journalist. I mean, very good. I mean, really good professional people was a nice place to work um and uh yeah and then you move uh, did you move straight across to the daily mirror after that then or yes but not to a uh, not to a journalistic role I, I i went there to um um be join a team of advisors on the marjorie proops advice column so basically we were there um answering the the letters, the many, many letters she would get in. She was very, a lot of people wouldn't, maybe wouldn't even remember her name now, um, but she was um, very famous um, agony art. Um, so that, yeah, so that was very different. I got involved with the trade unions, the trade union in um, the Daily Mirror, which is fascinating, closed entry shop, um, you, uh, I mean, you couldn't get a job unless you um, also agreed at the same time to join the trade union. Yes. I mean, you wouldn't, you know, human resources would not, personnel would be called, uh, you know, you just wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. And indeed, a lot of, a lot of jobs you got, the employment agency as such was the trade union. Um, and it was probably one of the best organized industries um, in terms of trade union membership, um, probably in Europe. Um, and that was a very interesting experience. Was that the NUJ? No, this was not, as I was saying, this wasn't, I did get onto, I did become, uh, or I did rejoin the NUJ again. Um, but um, this was, um, it was Nat Soper, which now long, no longer exists, and which eventually merged with SOGAT. So one of the major pre print unions. Was that SOGAT 82 in the end? That's right, yeah. Which is probably when they did it, that must have been right. Yeah, that was right, when we were going to the dinner, yeah. That would have been it, yeah. You worked with Marge, Marge Proops, and also when we were talking um, prior to this interview, we were talking about the kind of pastoral care that a newspaper seemed to have for its readership. Yeah, this um, we had, and I, I became the welfare advisor for the reader service department. Indeed, in towards the end, uh, the deputy manager of the department, which was, I think, we had a staff of about thirty, 
which was a large typing pool and I don't know, about 15, 16 advisors. And this wasn't unique. My understanding is these departments were created in a lot of the newspapers after the Second World War in response to social need, in response to people returning from the forces being demobbed and needing advice about so many things. Um, housing would be a major one. Uh, item without a citizen's advice bureau, without may, many advice points anywhere else. And so this was a large department. It also fed news stories into the newspaper. People would write um, to us and we'd investigate. And if it seemed like something we could make a news story out, it would be sent over to editorial. It also meant that all those letters that came into the newspaper, which would never make a story anywhere and shouldn't, didn't just get filed or thrown away. They got a proper reply. Mm. And even if we couldn't help, they would get the benefit of saying, you know, it being acknowledged that, yes, you're going through a hard time. I'm sorry about that. But mostly we would take up cases. We took up cases all the time and we battled with the authorities. Um, we got people rehoused. We campaigned on their behalf. Um, it was very proactive. Um, we uh, explained the law if it was something complicated, um, you know, like um, uh, social security benefit as it would have been at the time. Is, was all, that is always a complicated area. We'd investigate whether they were getting people getting the right benefits. It was an incredible service to provide. Um, and I think the Daily Mirror was the last newspaper to, to write. And that ended in I think it would have been 1985, maybe 1986, when Robert Maxwell took over the Daily Mirror and he closed it down. But this was the period as well, as sort of like uh, of Murdoch at his height, as well as, as Maxwell and so forth. And, uh, the, the, uh, I mean, this isn't the, the, the focus of the podcast, so obviously we're going to just touch on this more than anything, but I suppose it's the fact that a culture was changing. Yes, it was absolutely the same time. It was the the, um, the disputes in Wapping were just happened. They, the the, um, the Times had been moved over. It was Murdoch was. They were various people were deliberately break. I mean, they were breaking. They were clearly what they were doing um, was breaking the power of the unions within the print industry and changing newspapers and um, and that combined with uh, with a new technology which involved journalists. Um, which cut out a whole swathe of workers um, into, and the way printing was done, uh, everything was changing there. So that was that, that, even if the intent had not been an attack on trade unions, things would have changed anyway, it would inevitably change, working practices would have changed. Do you think there was a particular turning point um, or do you think that was just uh, an ongoing zeitgeist? I'm not sure. A lot of things came together in this country. I mean, I'm not really sure for how how the same sort of conditions played out in other countries, but certainly the fact that Maggie Thatcher was in power would have had, had an important impact. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the Daily Mirror was an important newspaper, and I think it still is important, but I think it has... Uh, but at that time, it, it was... It clearly had an agenda which was different to many newspapers. And one of them was that you champion, you are always critical of whoever is in authority, 
but you are Labour supporting and you are left leaning. Um, you you champion the underdog. You you look at social. You, you are interested in social causes and things like that. And it had a fantastic. I mean, there used to be page five, which was devoted, I kind of think, to foreign news. And you know, they would write a paragraph about what was happening in in Indonesia, which is probably all you need to know. But that was great. In fact, you could do it. And it was written in a certain style that it would have been that my father, with all his difficulties, would have been able to read it. Yes. That takes enormous skill and, and ability. And um, I, uh, I, I was there for a year in uh, Robert Maxwell, between Robert, after Robert Maxwell died and before what really we would have said was the bank taking over, there was a kind of year, a hiatus, no one knew what was happening. <coughs> At one point, it seemed that perhaps another member of the Maxwell family would take over or whatever. I think Maxwell died in 1990, didn't he? Yes, that would have been right, yeah. In a way, the editors took wooden charge for a year. And really, they were trying to work towards an editorial buyout. It never happened, and it probably would never be allowed to happen. Um, and Maxwell's kind of, I mean, the banks really owned it, and they, they came in and put their own people in. But... <coughs> That was, you know, a wonderful time. And I also was working at that time with Paul Foote at, in his office. He had a weekly column, um, which was um, a very hard hitting, very thoroughly in researched, in investigative, uh, devoted to investigative journalism. And he would be looking at corruption and things like arms deals and really things happening um, anywhere in the UK in any field um, and that was a wonderful experience um, and one of the things I mean the phone never stopped there it was always ringing people ringing in stories and everything else and it was called an alternative newsroom his office um, and one of the things about Paul was that he never bought a story and people would ring up and I you know maybe someone like me. I mean, the team was terribly small. It was um, four people, and that included the secretary. <coughs> and um, we'd ring up and they'd say, um, you know, I've got something very big to tell him, but I want money for this. And I said, well, you know, if you'd like to tell me what it is, and you know, I'll, you know, Paul will try and ring you back or something like that. But, you know, to be fair to you, I'm going to tell you there's, you know, there's expenses, of course, you know, if you, have to come and see him on train fare we'll pay you train fare but Paul never buys a story and I never knew anyone to stop talking then I said well okay I'll give it to him because he's Paul Foot. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts we all come from somewhere else this is the section of the podcast where we ask a guest to raise up on the plastic pedestal a member of the diaspora of either personal or cultural significance this week, Janet Bean. I came up with Brige Brennan, who is a fantastic, wonderful actress. I was her, I don't know if I was her understudy, but I was an understudy at the National Theatre when they were doing uh, Dancing at Lunasa. And I just remember sitting in rehearsals and watching her work and it was just so fascinating. And then I saw her not long ago in The Ferryman. She played the sort of the 
uh, uh, Granny Faraway, I think she was called or something. Oh, just sensational. And she played Beatrice. I was very, very lucky that she said she would play Beatrice in the first production of um, uh, the play. She couldn't do the second one because she was doing something else. But um, yeah, she's, she's a fabulous, fabulous actress and uh, lives in Hackney, I think. Did it, did, did it. She used to live in Hackney anyway, I think she probably still does. And uh, yeah, she's a great person and a great actress. And is there a particular quality of hers that you most admire? Honesty. She's and she's funny, but she's piercingly honest. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Thank you very much. Janet Bean there. Now back to our interview with Bridget Whelan, and we talk about the changes that she's seen in the approach to the Irish in this country, and if there was actually a turning point in the history of the diaspora. It's um, at one turning point, well, I mean, and also in the middle of that, it wasn't just no blacks, no Irish. That changed, that kind of changed. We, we got laws, we, you know, anti-racism laws and everything else. Then we became if it wasn't the thick party, it was the um, the dangerous. Who are you? Mm. You're the one, you know, you, you know, uh, the IRA, RA's active campaign on in Britain um, was an incredible influence on our lives, simply because of the way one was treated. And that, we, you know, a suspect, a suspect community. And I think the Irish community's response to it, and it was very you know, and it was um, the PTA, the Pre uh, Prevention of Terrorism Act, um, was very instrumental with this, was that it was suppressed. You know, don't put your head above the water. Don't do anything to upset people. And I think in incredibly important events were things like um, um, the Guildford Four, um, the Birmingham Six, the Maguire family uh, being arrested. And long before the first appeals were through, people in the community knew these were innocent people. And it was very influential. My mother retiring back to Ireland, I remember that now. And her big thing was Annie Maguire. She is so identified with Annie Maguire, the mother of the family of um, the aunt of Jerry Conlon, who was dragged in by the police and that awful period in the 70s where it did feel that you um you were guilty of being irish before anything else and and her comment about annie mcguire was that and i can, can I hear the sense of wonder about annie mcguire drank in the conservative club and they took her she said i would never have the confidence to walk into the conservative club to a conservative club if they could take the annie mcguires of this world and not feeling safe in this country. I really think, I don't, my mother, I don't think felt safe. Um, and she, I mean, she, 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 and she would tell her, she would certainly tell me off about the way I did things. Like I would have a couple of the Irish poet or an Irish paper and I wouldn't have it hidden in my handbag. No, you mustn't do that. Don't display it. Don't tell him Irish. And what she would say about herself is always have the right change for the bus so you don't, they don't hear your Irish accent. And this is living in Ilford and Essex and going about a normal work. Um, 
don't buy Irish newspapers in an English newsagent. You go to the, thank God for the Indians and the Pakistanis. They came over and took our newsagents. That means you could go buy an Irish newspaper. <laughs> um, and I think she was not alone. I think that's just, I mean, I know, I mean, because she, uh, because she was interviewed for the book I mentioned, but she was, um, but I mean, because she told me off, I didn't realize that she had lived her life like that, but making those little decisions in the same way that women make decisions about which streets you walk down, you don't you hardly even notice it, but you, 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 you're aware of certain things that you're more vulnerable in a certain area than another place or at a certain time of night or whatever, that her voice, her accent made her suspect at the very, uh, at the very beginning. And I certainly, I, I remember hearing someone saying, in a laughing, joking, it's a joke thing. But I mean, talk about me and some other guy that I was friendly with who was um, from Roscommon. Oh, it's funny that those two Irish people got together, isn't it? You know, they could be, you know, they could be an IRA cell. They've deliberately came, come here to, you know, it's funny how they, they've got to know each other. I'm going to have to ask, when did, when, when was that? Late 70s. Right. Late 70s. And I do remember um, that particular guy, I remember having been in the pub with him in that same sort of um, milieu with that same sort of people. And um, it, um, it was the time of uh, Bobby Sands. Mm -hmm. People would ask, about him and he said and someone was saying oh you know you lot and you know Bobby Sands he said don't say that it's Mr Robert Sands MP to you <laughs> and that was kind of important you know he got the ballot he did get the what for and uh, and actually but it was it, and but even he I mean he, we, but you wouldn't t tend to t talk about it in the pub like that because you would be again we were a, a suspect community and you you know you, you don't put your chin out too much. You don't put your head above the water. You just keep quiet. And things like the hunger strikers there um, gave you more feeling that, no, actually, you can put your shoulders back and say, look, it doesn't mean we're following the group, but look what you have to ask the question, why is it happening? And that's not the question you're ask, ever asking. Um, but I think if you're looking at plate points of change, real fundamental change about the way the Irish were regarded in this country, you can pinpoint it almost exactly to one particular day. And you can look it up and see when it is, because I wouldn't remember, but it's day 1990 when the Irish team played in Rome. And for me, it was, um, when the um, the Italians won the winning goal of that match, and the Irish fans sang "Viva la Roma," but for someone else I know, because I was arguing, he said no, it was when Italy had a strict ban, no alcohol before any match, but they lifted it for that match. They said we can trust the Irish, and it was suddenly that people saw them as performing on a world stage and but also but it wasn't it wasn't the team it was the fans it was the supporters that this is how you behave you support your team don't diss anyone else you're not rubbish you can 
get drunk if you like, but you don't, you don't smash up the bar. Mm. You buy the man behind the bar a drink if you're going to have one. And it was, it was absolutely, I remember being there at the time and I met, and, um, it was people. There was another kind of cliched view of um, what it meant to be Irish, and it had nothing to do with bombs. It had nothing to do with politics. It was seen to be a way of doing things, which was, an, you know, and everyone could recognise was an okay way of doing something, of actually being able to take the best out of that moment, but not steal it from someone else. Yeah, you're a better team than us. We're just granted. It's just been great being able to play with you. Um, and I remember not long after that, I must have been commuting in London and very near in Tottenham Court Road, I saw that a new sandwich bar had opened up. And this would have been 1991, 92, and they called themselves an Irish sandwich bar. And you think, my God, it was only 10 years ago, you wouldn't put your name in front of a bar if it, if it was Irish sounding because you'd be afraid of a, a brick through the window. Mm. They actually advertised because it was, became, and then what happened of course was also coming at the same time. In England, in London, pretty much in London, was the Ryanair generation of immigrants. And they weren't coming off the, the boats, um, looking for work in low paid jobs. They were coming well educated and they were working in the finance sectors. They were working in banks, they were working, they were professionals. And they were earning money, and that was, um, and those are the people who were in the bars cheering on the Irish team. So, what it looked like was a whole change. It was a different images of what being Irish meant. The others still were there, stood there in a the place, but there was other ones, more positive ones, being put uh, alongside them. So I've not never been that keen on sport, but. Um, um, but I think football, uh, I, think, uh, I think sport has, done, uh, um, or perhaps the way we deal with sport, um, has been important in our story in this country. There's an irony there, of course, because there was a huge diaspora element to the Irish team during that year. I mean, after all, course, it, was 1990, yes. it, was, um, it, was, it was managed by Jack Charlton. And there was quite a bit of fuss at the time about the number of players coming over from uh, the English teams. I remember, and I, I was, uh, you know, uh, I remember saying to someone, I said, well, you know, we, but, but it's the same rules that apply to everyone else. You know, the same rules for joining your, your national team. It's just that we've got more of them than you. We've got more immigrants. <laughs> we've got more, you know, that's, that's what you get for 200 years of sending out your youth, of losing that, that generation every time. Yeah. For 200 years, the young people left. And, you know, I... My parents moved back to Ireland in the early 1980s. And it was, and we obviously I'd go and visit them as often as we could. But I remember being there at Christmas and seeing one Christmas and there was a news report and it was the eve of Christmas Eve, the day, a few days before Christmas. And there was only one item on the news report. They're coming home. And it was the crowds waiting at the airports from sons and daughters to come home. And the difference between that generation and my parents' generation was that they could come home. My parents were lucky, they were able to come once a year, but it was, you know, uh, hard uh, for These were people who were in America, get back and make the connection, hopefully twice a year, that would be what they were aiming for. We're, we're, we're talking about like 200 years of, of emigration, and then there's a period where, 
for economic reasons as much as anything, and probably also the Celtic Tiger, I imagine, the uh, the amount of support that that Ireland gained from the from the European Union, that it could that it was a that it, it, it got the, the 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 leg up as it were to be able to I don't know, so like see eye to eye with any other. European country on a financial basis, on an economic basis, as much as anything. Yes, and also that combined, of course, with technology, meaning that being a small island off the European mainland was no longer a fantastic disadvantage. Um, if you're, um, you know, uh, a computer call center, you might as well be. You could be in Kilkenny as anywhere else. You didn't. So location no longer was the uh, be end and end all of um, many industries. We've seen that. Um, so that was another factor in it. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the incredible thing was, um, I, I, my, again, I quote my mother, because I, I do, she, I, I did a, I appreciate that. She, d she didn't, her, her, her thinking wasn't always conventional. It wasn't, um, she, she tried to think things out for herself. And I mean, I remember a long time before the Celtic Tiger, but she said the one thing that would change Ireland and save Ireland and make it different was just more people staying. And she, her idea was that it would, you know, once you have more people staying, then you've got more people wanting goods, therefore be more industry and everything else. It would have an incorrect impact, but more importantly, that you wouldn't lose your youth every time. Because who are those people who go out and because? Well, well, we don't know much about them, but we know they do something. They, they're active, they have gone, they have made a decision um, and they have left. And, and, it, and we can think there's another quality they must have. It takes guts to do that. It takes enormous courage to do that. Um, and to keep on doing it. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora, we all come from somewhere else, that you can find and subscribe to us on www.plasticpodcasts.com. In my final session with Bridget Whelan, we talk all sorts of subjects, but first we start with the price of both immigration and emigration. I remember studying in Irish studies about immigration requires that there's push factors and there's pull factors. The push factors from Ireland was the economic situation. There seemed to be so few opportunities if you stayed. But they were always attracted back. Ireland always meant something to me, uh, to them. I think, um, I think something we have in common as Irish people is a, a, a very strong sense of place. Um, and we miss our family, we miss the things we're used to, we miss the way we were brought up. We also miss those hills. We miss those, that river. Um, and so there's always this great pull of Irish people to go home as often as they could, to bring their children home and uh, to still feel part and connected with that the country. So what does home mean to you? Well, I think it meant different things at different periods in my life. I'm now older than my mother was when she returned to Ireland after um, a lifetime working over here. Um, I think it's, I think it's a difficult word for an immigrant. 
taking her again, she wanted to go home, but of course there was no home for her to go back to after 40 years because the country has changed, even though she was a regular visitor. Um, and she had, she, the country had changed from the one that she left. Being a retired person is very different to being a 20 year old going out to make your way in the world. And it was difficult for her to adjust. But for home, for me, growing up, home was never where we lived. It was always Ireland. And it was always my mother's village in Ireland. Um, I think, to, to be honest, I, I think home is people. And maybe the experience of the lockdown has emphasised that fact more than anything. I think it's made most of us reflect about what we really want and what we need. And which may, in fact, be reflected also in the fact that there, there seems to be a boom at the moment in um, buying and selling homes that people, you know, reflecting about changing their lives in certain ways. I certainly don't want to change my life. I know where my home is, is in my sons and my granddaughter. Mm. And, and that's, um, that's where, that, if you think it's where you feel most cherished, where you want to be, uh, where you want to connect with, um, rather than a place. I remember I was interviewing um, for a project, um, um, gay men's experience of migration. That was the, the project was about. Um, but um, because of that, I was doing some research about the gay community in Ireland. And uh, I was struck by um, New York, St. Patrick's Day Parade, this would be 90s, um, refused to have a gay float. That's right, yes, I remember. They didn't know. And the same year, I think it was Cork, St. Patrick's Day Parade organisers, had contacted the local LGB switchboard or whoever and said, Look, you haven't applied yet to put a float in. You did a great one last year. Come on, we, you know, we, we've got to have it. You know, it was, it was the best one we had. So the idea of, of banning it was, was not, didn't even come into it. They were just concerned that they, would, you know, that they, uh, they were going to be properly supported by the local community. And I think that kind of reflects that there's a, um, a, what can happen is a sense of your Irishness, a sense of what Ireland is, can be frozen in time. Mm. It's frozen to what you, your, not only just your youth, maybe, but an idealised idea of what that youth was like, remembering the good parts, maybe, or certain aspects of it rather than others. For us who were never born there, we are the child. I mean, I've I had the same uh, conversation with... Um, women from the Caribbean, you know, born in England, but, you know, we're not of England, but we're not Caribbean either. Yeah, that's right. You know, you, you don't know enough. You, you know, you haven't got all the shibboleths, you know. No, I didn't go to school there. I didn't learn Irish. Yes, yeah, so I do happen to know, you know, I mean, yeah, I do. I do consider myself Irish. That's what I put down on that you know, form. Well, I do that because what else would I put? What else could I put? There, there is no other um bottom me to tick um and i can't invent another one either it's not, um but i think that is part of the immigrant experience is that your children are going to have 
are fought in two countries and are home in neither. Effects of immigration, I think, go on much longer than we actually appreciate. Um, um, there was a very good study, I think, um, in the late 90s, uh, might have been 2000, um, done by Dr. Mary Hickman and others about um, researching into discrimination against the Irish community. And there's sort of incredible things that are coming out of that, like, but as a group, we're the one immigrant group whose health deteriorates on immigration to England rather than improves. And when in light of mental health, that is applied, goes down to the third generation. That we can see that there is an impact in this correlation between the things. And perhaps it's not that surprising because we've talked about various things, but until relatively recently, being a suspect community, and knowing too that you know we're, we are still, although we speak English, although we're white, we're all that we're part of the system and everything else. We are still on the outside. We're still on the edge. And it's um, and maybe I don't know what why also are we the community that's our health. Um, deteriorates on immigration. But maybe it is the idea that we are exiles rather than true immigrants, that we have left a country we didn't want to leave, or that our parents left a country that they didn't want to leave, and which, which holds us still, um, and we're still bound to in emotional terms, if in no other. And that in some, that we are reluctant immigrants um, and that perhaps we lay some of the responsibility, the need to immigrate, to immigrate um, on the door of the, um, of English history, that it's the, it's the relationship between the two countries which have um, created that situation. Um, and that's, and now we're, next year we'll be celebrating um, the creation of the Irish Free State. So it's, uh, these things have long consequences. One last question, it's, it's, it's in two parts essentially. And that is that uh, we've talked about your sense of being an outsider and having uh, uh, a foot in two countries, but a home in neither. And do you think that that sense of being an outsider has helped you in uh, in in writing? Well, I think it's a really good place to be um, because I think writers are always the outsider. We're looking on, aren't we? We're making a story out of the things that other people are experiencing. Instead of being in the moment, we're slightly out of the moment and trying to make connections. So um, I think writers are often the outsider for some reason, taking a step back. Which then leads me on to the, the, the last question, which is what does being a member of the diaspora mean to you? It's so closely entwined to what my sense of who I am that 
the question you just posed is as difficult as if you were to ask, what does being a woman mean to me? It is who I am. I am part of that community. Um, I, it's the tune I march to. It's the, the it's, um, it is more, certainly more than the church. It is probably the greatest influence in my life in terms of how I think and how I respond to things. How, um, but it is very hard to pull apart because it's so integral to who I am. Well, in that case, I'm going to wrap up by saying, Bridget Whelan, keep on marching. <laughs> dancing. I should say dancing. I don't oh. march. <laughs> <laughs>